Good afternoon. It's one o'clock on a Tuesday. That means it's time for the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. I am Stilly Sherlumbus, your host. And with me today is one of the few Australians that we like, Greg Nicholson. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Stilly. It's been a while. It's been a while. And uh, yeah, just to recap on uh, uh, on a poor cricketing performance by your team on Saturday. I know you're not the world's biggest cricket fan, but you know it, w- it would be wrong of us not to mention the, the drubbing that... Uh, the Aussies got at the hands of the Maybe we should talk protest. about rugby. I think that's a better start to the show. Mm, and the highway robbery that happened on <laughs> Saturday. <laughs> Again, in Australia against Australia. Um, so, uh, moving on to the, uh, to the Daily Maverick show, uh, we're kicking off things with a, with a fact. Um, so the lot, since the last time you've been here, we, uh, changed the format a little bit, Greg. So we've got a, a little bit, uh, a little bit of a, a fun start to the program. Okay. I'll uh, try to keep up. Okay. Um, so, we all know Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, one of the world's greatest boxers. Uh, we all know that he was famous for his boxing and his, uh, and, you know, sort of rather large ego and, uh, assessment of himself. But what a lot of people don't know is that Cassius Clay, at the time before he became Muhammad Ali, put out, uh, an album. Uh, and take a guess what this album was called. Uh, Fly Like a Butterfly, Sting Like a Bee? Yeah, close. It was called I Am the Greatest, which was quite a, a shock, uh, a shock to a lot of people. But it was kind of a, a little bit of stand-up poetry stroke rapping, uh, that he did. And I thought we could, we'd start the show with a little bit of a, a an excerpt from, uh, I Am the Greatest by Cassius Clay. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and rants and deedy of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. This brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. He is the greatest. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. This kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you're asleep for the night. So that was uh, that was Cassius Clay, 1964, put out this album along with uh, you know uh, being the world heavyweight champion of the world. One other interesting fact about uh, Cassius Clay is that he was really into magic. Um, and that was, he was quite good at it. His son, uh, told stories of, of how he used to do these, uh, card tricks and magic tricks around the ring. And, uh, he had to give it up because, uh, trickery is forbidden by Islam. So, so, now, so now we know, Stilly, while the rest of the Daily Maverick journalists are out chasing political <laughs> stories and looking at the economy, you're just looking up facts on Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali. Well, you know, these are the little, little pleasures in life that, <laughs> that, that keep us going. Um, Greg, in the news in the last couple of days, uh, we've seen a couple of big stories come out of, uh, come, come out of South Africa, um, sort of getting back onto the news cycle, um, uh, from all the international disasters and diseases that have been, that have been happening. Uh, the Tuli and Sela thing has just kind of blown completely out of proportion. Mm-hmm. It has. So, so this week we've seen the, uh, Mkonto Sizwe Military Veterans Association leader, um, Kebi, Kebi Mapatsuo, uh, he's saying that Tulima Dancela might be a CIA, CIA spy. And just sort of hearing these allegations, uh, it took me back to 2012 when the ANC had its policy conference in, um, in Midrand, the, the Gallagher estate. 
And me sort of being a younger journalist then, I was wandering, ar- wandering around and not really knowing where I was. And I found myself somewhat in the wrong place at the wrong time, perhaps where I shouldn't have been. So I was in an area where journalists weren't supposed to go, right? And then eventually sort of I was working on my computer and then someone saw me, one of the, the ANC security guys saw me and I had my tag in my jacket. And he sort of said, he's like, who are you? Um, who are you? Like, what are you doing here? Let's see your tag. And I said, media. And he's like, you're not supposed to be here. And I was like, oh, sorry, sorry. And nothing had started yet from, from their work that side, so I didn't see anything scandalous or whatever. But uh, he was really suspicious. And so he took me, sort of grabbed me by the arm, dragged me down one way, down sort of this long tunnel, sort of through, through the Gallagher estate. Then we got lost, so we had to go back the other way, you know. So mm-hmm. for about five or ten minutes, he's holding me by the arm, sort of. And at this stage, you didn't know who this guy was. You just thought. No, he was ANC security. ANC I knew security. that. You can okay. tell because they're big okay. bouncer-looking yeah, sort okay. of guys, you know. Right. So, you know, eventually we get out of the little conference center. And he goes up to another security guard, still holding me by the arm, saying, oh, I found this guy, you know, in here in the wrong place and whatever. And then the other guy sort of, then he grabbed me by the arm too. So now all of a sudden I'm being frog-marched by, by these two big ANC security guards. One of them had one of those Stalin or Lenin hats, what do you call it? You know, those big furry sort of hats. And they're marching me to my car just because I didn't have my ID documents on me. So they want to see my ID, right? So I'm getting marched to the car. And on the way, they're saying, oh, you know, sorry about this, but... Uh, we know how foreign intelligence agencies work. We know their modus operandi, and and we're looking out for anyone who be, could be committing espionage. And I'm just sort of this little guy getting marched by these two big people, you know, on the way to the car, and just like, seriously, guys, I'm a journalist. I swear, I swear, <laughs> I've been published. <laughs> it's right. I was like, do you have phone? Do you have phones? Just look on your phone. You can see my face. And they're saying, no, no, we know how these foreign governments work. So that's what I was thinking about this week when these allegations against Tuli Madanzela came out that she's a CIA agent, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and there really is still, I think, this level of, of fear and paranoia within some of the ANC different wings, especially sort of some of the MK veterans, because they have been trained to look out for this stuff, especially during the Cold War eras, when mm-hmm. a lot of these things did go on. And of course, they still go, do go on today, mm-hmm. but then back then they were very blatant as to how they went on. We had apartheid spies, you had, you know, USSR sort of spies mm-hmm. and American ones, and, and, and this was a real thing. And there, mm-hmm. are, there were lots of guys who were working for different sides. And well, in fact, we're still sending uh, spies to be trained in Russia. Mm, that's, right. Um, that's right. And coming back double agents, isn't that the fear? Yeah, well, that, and also, you can, you can also <laughs> imagine, like yeah, you can also imagine the kind of training that goes, that goes down in, in, in Russia. I mean, you can still imagine that America is still the big bad enemy mm. in, in the eyes of the Russians. So the kind of training that they get there, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that sort of CIA is the enemy. You know, indoctrination can still come through in that kind of training. Mm. But looking at um, looking at the comments this week from the from the MKMVA leader, I think it sort of it points to something else other than paranoia. Perhaps mm. um, he said um, sort of basically, Tuli must tell her, tell us who is her handler. Tuli can't claim um, that she was a member of Umkonto Sizwe, and all of a sudden she's acting like a counter revolutionary. They are even using our institutions now. These Chapter Nine institutions were created by the ANC but are now being used against us. And if you ask us why, it's an agenda of the Central Central Intelligence Agency. The Americans want their own CEO in South Africa, and we must not allow that. And I find it quite funny that um, that, that, that Mopatswe, uh, his only reasoning, if if, if Tuli Madonsela or other people are critical of the president, their only... Their only or their go-to. Their, their go-to response, or, or what seems logical to them, is CIA... They must be working for the CIA. Mm. It's it's clearly a defense mechanism to try and to try and divert attention mm-hmm. from from Tuli Madonsela's findings of her and Kandla report and the increased heat on President Zuma to to provide a more adequate response to Parliament in terms of paying back 
the money or paying back a percentage of the money, mm-hmm. um, which Tulu Madonsala suggested. So it, it seems like in their blind defense of the president that all logic has gone out the window. That I mean, we can't use reasoning and logic to defend this anymore. So, you know, pull the CIA card. And I think that's what happens when it, it, it's a sign that the ANC, particularly President Zuma and, and those around him, are really under a lot of pressure because what, what do you do? You know, you batten down the hatches mm-hmm. and, and you sort of close, you know, you close ranks mm-hmm. and just try to fight everything else that there is. You can't even acknowledge that these things are going mm-hmm. on. So if, if you acknowledge that the public protector has more, has legi- legitimacy mm-hmm. and that there might be, um, a lot of relevance in what she's saying in her reports and in her follow ups after that, then it exposes the president to, to, to further options mm-hmm. of, of, of recourse, the, the snowball effect will start, and we have to start sort of looking into these things. So instead, they just put up this, this sort of Chinese Smoke world, and- Chinese world. Yeah, that's right. And and we saw the same thing with um when when with Quetta yeah. and when, when so when the EFF had their little protest of Parliament, mm-hmm. pay back the money, mm-hmm. pay back the money. <laughs> <laughs> then then Quetta, and he'd already done this before, but Quetta goes and calls them rebels. You know, yeah. says they're a rebel Fascist. movement. That's right. It's sort of if we leave mm-hmm. the country, we might come back and there'll be a coup. Like yeah. this is Lesotho or something. Yeah. It's like fighting them with, with smokescreen and distractions. Um, That's right. Rather than engaging them on actual substantial debate or reason or rhetoric, you know. Yeah. Or, or you know, at times it seems like, you know, Dr. Survey is in, in charge of ANC communications at, uh, you know, at, at this level with, with the CIA finger pointing. You're the boss at Daily Maverick, so I'll let you involve <laughs> in those inter, intermedia wars. I'll, I'll stay out of it. <laughs> I might want another job one day. Um, so... This kind of reminds me of um, a, a quote I was reading out of uh, Emma Sadler's new book, uh, Don't Film Yourself Having Sex, and hopefully we'll get on the line later on. Um, the social this, media yeah, book, yes, right? Yeah, it's advice on social media and how you should conduct yourself as, a, as just a general person or person who's representing a corporate or a newsroom, for example. And there's a whole host of good advice in there, and it's kind of packaged a lot of the presentations that she's done and, and that her and her partner, Tamsin Debeer, um, go out and do and, and do lectures um, to corporates and schools and, and newsrooms. Um, but in there was this particular story, uh, this chapter on sports stars. And um, a lot of cricketers in England and, and footballers have come under a lot of fire for things they've said on Twitter and, you know, uh, and the way they should uh, conduct themselves on Twitter. Um, so this, this, this quote was from the former CEO of the England cricket, uh, cricket, English Cricket and Wales, um, Wales Board um, CEO. Uh, his name's Hugh Morris, and he came out and he was talking about how uh, cricketers were using the medium. And I was thinking we could apply this to a couple of our, our government officials who've taken this in any sort of public stage recently. And he, he said this, it's like giving a machine gun to a monkey. It can be fantastic or it can be an absolute disaster too. <laughs> and I think this is just, you know, just rings true for, for so many sort of public statements and appearances, especially by some of our government officials of late. I think it's anyone, you know, when, when you're under extreme pressure and under extreme criti- criticism, you're prone to say something really stupid. Mm. You know, it happens. And, and I think, I think we just have to move past some of these things. You know, we can't go engaging and like taking these comments seriously that Tuli Madonsela is a part, you know, a part of the CIA mm. or a CIA agent. Or, well, he's got, you know, the, the MKMVA leader has, has time to provide some evidence. So mm. we'll see. If, if, if it's true, you know, bring up the evidence and then we can engage it seriously. If not, let's look at the real issues that are here. And the real issues that are here, it's not just that President Zuma, there was a fortune spent on his own house and his family benefited unduly and he should have known about it. It's a subverting of, of 
democratic institutions and a lack of accountability and responsibility for what the government does, which then flows down into other spheres of government and and really, really sort of harms our administration across the board by setting that example. Yeah, but, I mean, there's a lot of damage being done along the way here. I mean, there's reputational damage, obviously, to Skebi himself, to, mm. the, you know, to the ANC, to the government, to the country. I mean, we, we, we could be on the verge of a diplomatic row mm. on the back of this. You know, mm. the U.S. coming out saying, well, you can't just make those kind of allegations. Mm. You know, there's, there's going to be a fallout from this. It also, I think, interestingly shows shows different divisions between um, the alliances of the tripartite alliance and our, and our South African state. Because on the one hand, you'll see, and, and Richard Poplack wrote an article on this for us, um, that the SACP came out with a statement harshly criticizing the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and, excuse me, and, and the SACP, you know, the South African Communist Party said, of course, that that they're glad the Dalai Lama uh, didn't get a visa for South Africa or, or he withdrew his application. And and he's trying to fight for secession uh, for Tibet from China. And he's also foreign-funded and he's an agitator of violence and all this sort of stuff. The Dalai Lama, but... And he was CIA-funded as well. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> the CIA, they got damn everywhere. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and in this room, do we have, you know, like something behind the pot plant? <laughs> but um, so so what that showed was... It was it was obviously clear, clear po- politicking from the SACP's side, um, trying to trying to show their allegiance to China, and and China sort of sent out a statement, and they they said you know that they that they're happy with SACP's stance and South Africa's stance on this issue. On the other hand, the South African government also has close ties to the U.S. government, or, or we have ties to the U.S. government, and it's obviously important economically and for our power base around the world to also keep close ties and be allies with the U.S. government. So I think it's quite interesting. So. Back in the day, you know, during apartheid, you had it was you know your USSRs and your Chinas and and some other countries around the world who actually were supporting some of the struggle movements where the US until the very mm-hmm. last yeah. days yeah. of apartheid yeah. were were actually still calling the ANC a terrorist, terrorist organization, organization. Yeah. and 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 they were trying to help you know um, they were mm-hmm. trying to help the apartheid government. The, mm-hmm. the famous story is that they helped set up Mandela's arrest, mm-hmm. but. So, so it's quite interesting now seeing how these things play out. So when you've got these old leaders who were involved in the struggle and all these espionage and sabotage and whatnot, they look at the U.S. and they still see these these foreign agents, these guys who are trying to subvert democracy and control the world from their own from their own little pocket for their own benefit. And you know, of course, they are involved in trying to do certain stuff, but at the same time, they're also an, our allies. And you saw President Zuma go over there recently for the for the trade agreement. And, and so now there's sort of this difficult situation where we're trying to balance these two different allies and old and new friends. Well, it's almost like you can't really adopt that kind of, uh, smokescreen and bullshit policy, um, and not, and not suffer any consequences. Mm. You know, uh, you can't just throw reason and logic out the window and expect that there won't be any, any fallout from making those kind of statements. And I don't know what Mapazza was thinking because there were actually two U.S. diplomatic officials in that press conference. <laughs> they were even sitting there, like listening, being like, ah, um, sorry, uh, sorry, sorry, Kevin. Oh. I mean, <laughs> I would have paid good money just to see the look on their faces when that statement <laughs> yeah. came out. I mean, you know, uh, I think immediately they just must have been on the phone, you know, Obama, <laughs> we have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now we've seen Tilly come out and say, I think that she's threatening to sue, mm. um, if, if the comments aren't retracted and, and, uh, and Kebby doesn't apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, geez, it, it, we can't go two or three days without that poor woman being in the news or being in the front line of some kind of attack. It's incredible, isn't it? And she seems to wear it so, so calmly and carefully and just, mm. it just sort of, you know, takes it in her stride. But I think there has been, she has been frustrated at it over this mm. issue. We saw, we saw when she was attacked last week, I think it was, who was it this time? The ANC or whoever it was. Mm. 
she started tweeting a few different little things. You know, it was sort of like subtweeting mm. what the ANC was saying about, um, you know, how can it be subverting democracy when when we're just oh, that's right. That's when they were responding to to her letter. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I think it is wearing on her a little bit. But one of the interesting things is that she does have the power to take people f- to court for sort of sort of. Depends on what, but but criticism of the public protector's office. Mm-hmm. You can actually take sort of, especially government officials, to court for that. Because especially that, something that's just been that you know Kibi Mufasa has just especially just this. But but she could have even I think for for some of the other issues mm-hmm. taken people to court for that, but she decided mm-hmm. not to. Mm-hmm. So for this issue, she's just said screw it, enough is enough. We have to actually stop this. And so yeah. so I think if he doesn't go to court, I mean if he doesn't apologize or or Retract. I think I think really go on his knees and sort of mm. beg for beg for forgiveness, he'll um he'll he'll be taken to court. And that, that might uh sort of set a precedent that says Imagine the blockage if she did take every one of those uh people right. to uh to court, right? I mean and backed up for years. Not not only that, but the public perception of her would change. The ANC already says she's working against Pres- mm-hmm. President Zuma and trying to be a you know a DA agent or an opposition for change. Or EFF, you know. And so I think by by always taking things to court and taking an adversarial stance, you know, continuously, that would just build up this sort of negative image of her in the public's mind. Instead, I think she's she's tried to adopt the approach where she uses the law to her own benefit and tries to keep her her responses within the confines of the law, and also tries to be the bigger man or woman mm-hmm. um, instead of stooping down to these other people's levels. And that can help the public perception of her to actually have faith in her institution. And when I think these these different um, we have these rows, mm-hmm. having having her sort of stand up as a moral leader on that front um, really helps her. Yeah, well, and then also because there seem to be so so few of those around. That's right. You know, um, and and this is why the whole country is like getting behind her and I'm trying to think of an example. And I just <laughs> yeah, can't. you can't. You know, it's like this lone ranger almost. Fancy Tukula, almost was. Yeah. Um. So, moving on. I mean, there's been some developments at uh, Marikana uh, at the Farlem Commission. Uh, video evidence being brought forward, and you know, police putting forward video evidence that they've been sort of trashed by. Um, by the other side. You've been following that story quite closely. I have, I have. And so, so I guess the, 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 the key things to mention are last week we saw the South African Human Rights Commission. Actually, so first of all, I should say this guy, Sisterova. He was, he was an expert witness for the police. So the police had him come out from Holland where he's a, you know, a big policing expert. And they had him analyze all this sort of different type of, all the evidence there is involved. And then, so they put him on the stand and his initial statements really did support the police. They said, he said that the police basically did the best that they could in Maracana on the 16th, given the limitations that they had. Um, basically, they tried They tried to, how would you put it? They tried to um, resolve the situation as best as they could. Um, they, used, they used non-lethal means, so sort of your rubber bullets, your stun, gra- stun grenades, your water cannons and things like that, before that they, then they were put in this untenable situation where there was a direct risk to life. And, and only then and, and there did they then fire live ammunition at these protesters who were, according to the police, who were charging, you know, head on at the police, intent on killing them. So the South African Human Rights Commission presented this expert, the SAPS expert, with video evidence. And what they did was, because we have all the, all these sort of different footage from Marikana, but none of it gives a clear sort of timeline of events as to what happened. Obviously, there's no one camera that shows mm-hmm. everything that happened. So a lot of it's up to basically who the editor is and how they piece together all these different pieces. Well, so you can tell two very different stories. I- yes, that's right. And incredibly, sort of, we haven't really seen much editing, even piecing together of all these different mm-hmm. stuff so far. 
but the South African Human Rights Commission got some video, you know, expert or some nerd to to look at all this evidence as well as the photos. Everything was time stamped and sort of work within one um, one time and fit it all in. So mm, we and can try and create a, a, a an effective timeline of what really what really happened. That's right, and actually as well from multiple angles because sometimes we have video evidence from the same time from different angles. So you can even see different stuff happening at once, you know. So so they they brought this video evidence to the commission. And I think there were... What was the source of that video evidence, Greg? Where was most of it coming from? From the police? From no, di- Lodman? Dif- different from, places, yeah. From reporters? That's right. I'd say those three were the key ones. So the police have their own guys on the ground with video cameras. General, generally at all protests, they do that. Then Lodman had some security cameras that were around. And then there was there was an Al Jazeera camera on the ground. There was an SABC camera, and there was a Reuters, Reuters camera. One, I think yeah, that's the yeah, key ones. Yeah. And so between them, and then sometimes there was aerial footage from, from the police from the helicopters. And some of the footage is a bit patchy, but putting it all together, we can sort of get a get a bit of an idea of what um, of what happened. And I'd say there are sort of four key points to look at, and all of them uh, hit at the heart of the police argument that these these striking mine workers were um, sort of drunk on muti and muti and just mm-hmm. intent intent on violence and really wanted to kill the cops and there was almost no other option to deal with them but but kill them. So, firstly, the police have said that the miners just charged at the you know, at the police because sort of got through their rolls of barbed wire that they were laying out. You know, it sounds like they were sort of going for a try or something like that and they mm-hmm. just and you know and they got so close to the police and someone one of the, they shot guns and then so the police had to sort of put them down. You know, but this video shows that. In fact, what happened was the mine workers, for for a good two or three minutes before the, they that they had that the the confrontation with the police at scene one, where 16, mm-hmm. 16 people died, they were they were just marching around a little bit. They did look um, they were a very sort of tight unit, and they did have weapons, mm-hmm. but they were going near the police. They weren't attacking them. Mm-hmm. They were going right by the police for a few minutes. And if they really did want to, want to attack the police, they could have done it easily just then and there. This was before the barbed wire was rolled mm-hmm. out, anything like that, and then. Eventually, what happened was they it looked like they were trying to go back to their informal settlement in Kanang. So this is if you watched uh, Miner Shot Down mm-hmm. by Rehad Desai. I think mm-hmm. it's at this point where the, sort of the narration sort of um, leads the viewer to think that you know the, the strikers knew that something was amiss here, something was wrong, and they saw this you know gathering of police, the mortuary mm-hmm. vans. The, uh, I think uh, Joseph Matundua had just failed, yeah. in, you know, in, and you know, and he also warned them that this it, is going to be dangerous. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they they kind of smelt that something w- w- bad mm-hmm. was about to happen, so they decided, look, let's let's just get the hell out of here, that's and right. then they decided to disperse. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so I mean, so that's the the scene in mm-hmm. in in the movie uh, or in the documentary is you know you you're given the impression that. You know, the guys are walking away, mm-hmm. and you can see there's footage of the guys right. kind of walking away and saying, look, there's bad, bad shit's about to go down that's here, right. and they're leaving on their own accord. That's right, and they're still, we're talking about the front group now, so the key core group mm-hmm. of strikers. Mm-hmm. So they're still very uh, sort of tight, you know, it looks almost like a little army mm-hmm. battalion or something mm-hmm. like that, but there's there's cause for that because they've been attacked before, so, you know, and, they, and this is how they sort of operate. Mm-hmm. So, <coughs> excuse me. So they're, they're trying to walk towards their settlement, and then, at some point, you see a number of police vehicles go and cut them off from that road, from the settlement. And so it actually creates a path where they walk between a cattle kraal mm. and these police vehicles. And as they round that cattle kraal, then police start shooting a water cannon and stun grenades to the rear of the group. These guys get a little bit jittery, mm-hmm. and then police start shooting police behind those vehicles. Well, I mean, that's obviously going to cause a stampede, basically. People are going to want to be escaping the, the water cannons and the, and the stun grenades and... That's just going to create chaos and mayhem. And the way they escape from, and then also they start getting shot with rubber bullets. And then what happens is one striker pulls out a gun, 
and fires towards the police, but mm-hmm. it looks from the video evidence, it looks like he misses and just hits the ground. Mm-hmm. But then, so when they do start running, they run and sort of circle this cattle kraal, sort of about a quarter of the circle of the cattle kraal. And what they can't see and what's on the other end of the cattle kraal is a line of TRT officers with R5s. Mm-hmm. And so as they get closer, these TRT officers open fire. And the video also shows that there were no, before the first person's shot, at least, there's no fire um, shots, live ammunition that goes into the ground, creating dust mm-hmm. clouds. Actually, there are some later, but... They're simultaneously shooting people and shooting in the ground at once. There's no warning shots into the ground. So that's one thing. And then also, there's still shots, 14 ceasefire calls, 14 ceasefire calls from these TRT officers. Before before it's, before it, that's the right. ceasefire actually kicks in. There, there's even a shot after the 14 mm. ceasefire call. That's that's what happened too. Mm. And then also the police's argument that they used non-lethal means, you know, your your rubber bullets, your stun grenades, your um, your water cannons. To really sort of stop, to, to, to sort of get peace and, you know, try to, try to calm the situation down before they would have to use force really actually does look quite spurious now, that argument, because water cannons were only used, I think it was one, like 10 seconds before this shooting happened. So not, not while these guys are just walking around here. But even there. then, what was the justification for using the water cannon? Well, it could have, as they're you know. going sort of towards the close of the police, maybe try to push them back. But you could have used that 10 minutes ago. You know what yeah. I mean? If you want to, if you really want to keep a barrier between them and police. Yeah, but from the, from the footage that I've seen, it didn't look at any stage like there was an imminent threat of violence, for example. Mm. You know, so even using the water, I mean, you don't use water cannon to guide people into that's what walking. Looked, that's what looked what happened. It actually guided because it went to the rear of their group and pushed them away towards these police using live ammunition. And the same thing with the sun grenades. Mm. And so, so the police's argument that they only used force as a last resort to prevent mm. loss of life. Um, I think is gone now. Uh, I think their, their defense that they're not at least tactically responsible in terms of the strategies that they used that mm-hmm. day has been, has been disproved. And I think they can even be, they may now be found responsible for causing these deaths. It's very hard listening to you talk about that, um, footage presented by the SA Human Rights Commission and looking at, at documentary like Minor mm. Shut Down to see that this wasn't a planned, you know, a planned event, you know, a planned takedown of, of these miners. I mean, it's, it's hard not to mm. come to that conclusion. I think it is extremely difficult, especially when you see footage of those, those TRT officers being, calling each other to the line. So as, mm. as these miners are coming around, slowly coming around this corral, sort of doing that circle with walking, you, there's also footage of the uh, tactical response team officers and like, looks like there's about a hundred of them. Mm. There's so many of them. Mm. And so, and they're sort of coming up almost to meet them. Mm. And so. And again, the damning evidence of having those mortuary vans there. That's right. in on the morning ahead of what happened. 4,000, 4,000 rounds of live ammunition, ammunition ordered. And the police had, uh, two of their colleagues were hacked to death on, on the Monday that week. So, mm. so they were actually quite unhappy about that as well. I think it's, it's extreme. It's going to be a bit difficult to prove that. They, they sort of set up this, um, this situation for them to massacre these mine workers there, but it definitely doesn't look good and they definitely had cause to want to kill them. Mm. What I think is actually more likely to, to sort of, um, if we're going to throw murder accusations around mm. is at scene two where, where, when these, when these miners were fleeing, mm. there doesn't seem to be any evidence really at all that the, I think it was 18 people that were killed there. Posed, posed a risk. And it was 18 and 16, right? So that's 16, eight. 16 and scene one and 18 and scene two. That's right. And that happened off camera. That happens mm. where, where we know we haven't seen any footage. Mm. And, and there it actually just seems like the evidence seems to suggest that they were fleeing and that there wasn't, mm. there wasn't a real, um, 
a real risk to anyone, to anyone's life. And, and that most of them were shot up close. Um, you know, very, very close from, from, from there. And there are, there are reports of seeing miners who lived saw, saw some of their colleagues and comrades stand up to mm. surrender, stood up hands in the air only to get shot down. Mm. So, so it's, it's quite, quite confronting and a little bit depressing to talk about as well. Um, the commission goes on till the 30th, is that right? End of September. It has to finish by the 30th? Well, President Zuma can extend it if he likes, which he's done multiple times so far, but we haven't seen any hint of that yet. When, when he extends it, it often happens like a week before it's supposed to end. So mm. it's either going to, it's either going to just be duh, done at September 30, or in the last few days, he'll be like, you have another month, or you have another two months. But I think the time's running out to how, how long we can extend it for, because it's been going for, That'll be almost two years mm-hmm. if, if we end in September 30. So I think we're going to see an end quite soon. And I, th- if, if I'm correct, it's two months after that. These, these commissioners have to submit their reports. And that will be where they do or do not suggest that criminal charges should be laid against certain actors involved. And, uh, and then obviously then the whole criminal process will then kick in after that as well. Oh, hopefully. Yeah. That's, well, well what hap- has to happen is, first of all, the commissioners need to recommend um, a course of action. A course or, of action that, that perhaps the NPA should look at should look at um, putting criminal charges in. Then the NPA will have to say we agree. So so there's still quite a quite a process to be followed if we're going to see any criminal charges laid. Yeah, an absolute shocking story, and you know this massive blight on the history of post democratic democratic South Africa. Mm. Uh, hopefully, the a resolution will be found that that brings justice to the people that were killed on that day. I mean, an injustice that is still going on is obviously the uh, the fact that these miners might not be entitled to legal aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you saw, right. that. you saw that. So, I mean, to add complete insult to death, mm-hmm. not only injury, is that, you know, um, these guys won't be allowed to, to legal aid for, mm-hmm. for their representation at the commission. And one of the things I think I would like to point out that I'm not sure if many people know about as well is the the widows and the family members of the deceased, and this isn't actually just the mine workers, but also the police and the security guards, all of them have mentioned that they're under financial pressure at the moment because most of them have lost their breadwinner. So if you're talking about the miners, you're often talking about um, someone that comes from a certain area of Eastern Cape uh, who has their probably has their own family of, you know, a wife and children, mm. and then likely probably supports their parents and, and some other family members as well. So you're talking around about 10 Different family people, members yeah. dependents. That's what, that's what the average mm. is. And these, the, the, the widows and the family members who, um, who were related to the victims often say that that's one of the, the hardest things now. Not only have you lost the person that you loved, you've also lost your ability to survive and put your kids through children, or school. So London puts some mm. kids through school, but not all of them. And then there are other things to pay for, you know, just the, the, the you used to, used to be okay sort of putting food on the table and now it's not. And that's one of the key things that the family members want to see as well. They actually want to see some sort of financial, um, financial sort of a lump sum or some sort of sum mm-hmm. that, that can help them out mm-hmm. because they've, they've, they've lost their ability to survive. And, and I think that's one of the key things that really needs to come through in this commission's report. Given uh, how closely you followed the story and, you know, been attending the, the sessions at the Farlem Commission, do you think there is enough evidence on the table for a recommendation for criminal action to be pursued at the end of this? Mm, I don't particularly think so because the difficulty is the difficulty is identifying someone to actually a specific person, adi- you know, specific person or, or department, and you know, and laying the blame at at their feet. That's right, because unless unless you were to sort of charge or recommend charging the commanders, so perhaps the, the Northwest Provincial Commissioner, 
um, or one of the key guys on the ground. But even even then, none of them will acknowledge responsibility and all of them say, oh, there was a communication breakdown or whatnot. All of them have excuses. I think unless we, we want to sort of lay the blame at the top, there's no one at the moment who's been identified that we can actually at the top, charge. Do you mean the minister of police? Do you mean no? I'd Cyril? say. Do you mean? I'd say. I'd say Rio Pieja yeah. or Bombo, the the northwest provincial police commissioner. Um, but even then, I'm not sure if it would be fair to charge them. Perhaps, perhaps one of them, because if if you want to, you know, lay the blame at the top. But it I seems don't, almost like a systemic, you know. Denial of responsibility. Yeah, you know, all the way from the top and everyone kind of using that as an excuse because... Right down to the guys on the ground. Exactly. That's right. And and if everyone does it, it just makes it harder to pinpoint accountability and responsibility for what happened on that day. That's right. Everyone's pointing fingers. And they also, we have to remember as well that there are other people to point fingers at. One of the people that often don't get as much pressure as they should is lawnmen. Lonman put the put the police in this situation because they, they wouldn't ref- engage. They refused to talk to these guys. All, all they would have had to do is actually say, "Hey, you know, let, let's sit down, let's chat, let's Keep actually the negotiations going." That's right, and they didn't, and they didn't because, well, this is what uh, Advocate Dalian Porfil suggests, because they didn't want to pay out higher increases for rockdrill operators like Impala Platinum did earlier in the year. They thought that they could just end this thing without having to pay higher increases, and that that does really put um, the responsibility at Lonman's feet as well. It kind of brings Cyril back into the into the mix. <laughs> you know, he just can't get away from this, can he? That's where, and this is, and Popo has this sort of, what does he call it? So I think a conduit of political power and violence. Mm. So Lonman didn't want to pay these increases. How do they end the strikes? Let's use Cyril to pressure mm. government, mm. to pressure the police, mm. to crack down on these miners so we can cl- end the strikes mm. using poli- using police force. Mm. Start use state resources. That's right. Start work again. Platinum keeps on rolling and didn't have to pay any money. That's what Dalian Polfo mm. says happened. Proving it is a bit harder. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's absolutely crazy that, you know, something like this has happened in our country and there is a prospect that no one could be held accountable mm. for it. Mm. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's just completely crazy. One, one of the scary things on that topic I'd like to mention that this this Dutch policing expert, um, Darova. Darova. Yeah. So. He actually had this sort of, it was a bit of a monologue. He was, he was in the stand, you know, and he was testifying and saying. So initially he came out with evidence that supported that's the right. police's and then, theories. And he was showing all this evidence and sort of said, if that's, if that's true, I guess I was wrong and perhaps I was misled and perhaps you're right. He was only showing the, the police's uh, version that's of events, right. an edited that's version right. of events. And one of the key things that he said there, I forgot to mention, sorry, um, was that he would highly doubt that politicians were not involved in the process for this of of deciding to institute their their strategy of dispersing, disarming, and arresting the mine workers on the 16th of August. That's after he said working in uh, I think it's over 60 countries as a policing mm-hmm. expert mm-hmm. and and advising um, policing organisations around the whole world. He said in a democratic country, he'd be extremely surprised when there's such um, risks on the line. So we have the economy um, through through Lonman's mm-hmm. losses. We have lives, of course. Um, he said it would be extremely surprising in a democratic economy um, and government where the cabinet or sort of executive is not involved in, the, in mm. this, a decision like this that's so important. But In, in terms of trying to, to find a resolution and in, in getting involved in, in that process? Uh, yeah, it's just sort of the police's actions mm. and what's going on here. He just sort of said it would be ludicrous to think that the politicians weren't involved mm. considering how important it was. Mm. And all of the politicians have denied involvement except for, you know, a phone call here. Ah, oh, what's going on? Okay, sort of. I mean, there was another up. one of the big criticisms of our president at the time was mm. where was he at the time? Where was the leadership shown? Yeah, I doubt, to, to, I doubt to Zuma was involved just because yeah. he's got other things to do. You know, he's, he's busy in the fire pool just relaxing. <laughs> yeah, look, the fire pool wasn't going to build itself. <laughs> That's right. So, um, 
But then one of the interesting things Darova sort of went to, he went on this big monologue, like he was just performing, and he was saying how, he was saying how, you know, in the week leading up to, to when this happened, so we have the, the big course of events is sort of from the 9th to the 16th of August, 2012, mm. and just how there wasn't a big reaction from South African society and outrage about what's going on here in Marikana. It wasn't really until the 16th that mm. everyone sort of started to sit up and be like, oh, shit, you know. Like, this is completely ludicrous. But there was, you know, five people died on the Monday before in, mm. in clashes. Well, that and, brings... and people even before that. And he just sort of went on this sort of long talk about how, sort of what kind of society are we living in here? Mm-hmm. Um, where, where so many people can die and so many people, there's such violence and there's, um, there, there, these horrible situations and there isn't this sort of widespread moral outrage. Mm-hmm. And it actually got me thinking as, you know, I sit here with the papers in front of me. We, it's hard for us in South Africa to now, to actually get affected by all that sort of violence because we see so much of it. There's so much rape and murder and things like that reported all the time that that sometimes when we need to be outraged, we mm. need to need to respond sort of as a, as a society and say something needs to be done right now. We don't because we're so de- desensitized. I think that's one part of the argument. The other one is obviously that in that period, those days leading up um, where people had died, there was a hell of a lot of misinformation and poor reporting that was coming out of there. That's right. And, uh, and, and we keep going back to that uh, analysis that was done by the Rhodes School of Journalism, looking at the sources of information mm. uh, in the lead-up to Greg Marinovich's uh, article, which shone the light on what happened at the scene two at the second copy, uh, which you know provided some indication that all wasn't okay here uh, with how those, those miners died. And going back to that study and showed that you know, the sources of information were, you know, was Lonman, <laughs> was police spokespeople, uh, were unions, yeah, or the unions, uh, and very, very little was coming from the miners, mm. and the little that was coming from the miners was basically this infatuation with the story that uh, about the Muti, which was going mm. to protect them, basically portraying them in this sort of Neanderthal, idiot-like, mm. uh, you know, uh, a- 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 state. Alongside the sort of the the discussion, you know, the, the stories of the fights between NUM and AMCO, mm. which I've learned actually in retrospect that that wasn't what it's about. You know, there were those, those did play a factor, but it was actually just a worker-led strike. And so we were just misled on these, all these different ways. It's quite fascinating. And again, a lot of that was the distra- distraction, smokescreen mm. mm. uh, right. approach. It. So, you know, on the one hand, we are, of course, we're desensitized. You know, I mean, you know, uh, a robber getting shot down the road at a shopping mall doesn't kind of in, even make the news anymore mm. um, because it's just, you know, it's not enough death and destruction mm. to actually even make the, the front pages. But on the other hand, you know, uh, a lot of the coverage in the media was was to blame for. In you know, to this day, people still think that uh, you know a lot of the, the cops were acting in self defense. Mm. You know, and you know if you look at the, a lot of the evidence coming out, as as you said, when you look at it, it's very hard not to come to a different conclusion. That's right. Um, and, and especially when you, you know, I, I know there are, there are, I, there are some issues with minor shutdown. I mean, telling a particular story. I mean, and how. You know, uh, Amku and Joseph Machundo come out smelling like roses when mm. in fact, you know, they're not, not, they don't exactly, uh, you know, deserve to smell like roses. But it does kind of piece together a lot of the stuff. And it's hard not to be outraged when you watch that documentary. It's hard not to be moved. You know, I think, you know, our souls aren't that blackened and that, that hardened that we can't be, uh, affected by, by what happened, what happened that day. Mm. No, I think the documentary really brings the emotion of it out at that. That shows, shows, I think, how important it is and also how it ties into other historic and societal issues that, that we're living with in this country today.
and almost how like the wheel has turned again 360 degrees and we seem to be back to some of those apartheid era you know policing strategies and policies of oh well, i guess i think so but one wonders whether the, the police ever really improved enough mm. from those days or whether they're just the, the those things have um those things have carried on Okay, so um, off to something a little bit more lighter than uh, the death and destruction we've been talking about. We've got Emma Sadler on the line. Hi, Emma. Hi, Studdy. Thank you for having me. Uh, congrats on your book. I uh, received it in the post the other day. I was wondering whether it was um, prophetic to, to receive a book that said uh, that it's titled Don't Form Yourself Having Sex. <laughs> well, as long as you think it was prophetic and not pathetic, then I'm on your team. <laughs> um, so, Emma, tell us about the book. I mean, we, we've sat through one of your presentations before, so uh, it seems to be a collection of all this wonderful advice and, you know, uh, practice and things you've picked up along the way, assisting and helping people along the way. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, thanks, Lily. Well, it's a book about social media and the law, primarily. We've divided it into four different sections. The first section deals with the law bit. So what is defamation, what is a right to privacy, data protection, intellectual property, um, harassment, all these kind of things where people land up in court in trouble. Particularly in South Africa, uh, hate speech is one where we see people finding themselves in front of the South African Human Rights Commission all the time. The next bit is about common sense, and that, of course, uh, features the Don't Storm Yourself Having Sex, which sounds like a catchy title, but is indeed very good legal legal advice. And, I mean, I think we've got to the point, Philly, where we have to appreciate the reality of sexing. So it's practical advice, like if you are going to take pictures of yourself naked, make sure that your genitals and your face aren't in the same photograph. Um, <laughs> Wear a mask. <laughs> yeah, well, aren't recognizable. Well, I mean, <laughs> my dad was telling me a wonderful story uh, this morning, actually. He heard an interview and phoned me about some uh, two dons who were rowing down the river in Cambridge and... Uh, the one, they were completely naked. They'd been on a rather rat at lunch. And they had between them two newspapers. And they suddenly came across a whole group of people. So the one chap, <laughs> the one chap put his newspaper over his genitals. And the other put the newspaper over his face. And they sort of drove past <laughs> And the guy said to him, well, I just don't understand. Why did you put the newspaper over your face and not over your genitals? And he said, my dear boy, you may be better known in these parts by your genitalia. But I am better known by my face. <laughs> It's also a fairly classic Geraldism. Um, okay, so that's the sort of common sense. But we also talk about online dating, how to make sure that you're safe um, in the digital world, making sure that you know that you shouldn't drink when you tweet, uh, make sure that you know that when you... Hold on, did you say illegal, we shouldn't drink and tweet? Yeah, I mean, oh, just make sure that... If you, <laughs> you know, we had a case a couple of years ago, silly, where a guy was so drunk... Um, and he tweeted that, uh, uh, you know, something racist about Fabrice Mwamba, you know, the footballer mm -hmm. uh, who had a heart attack on the pitch. And sometimes being very drunk when you commit a crime is helpful because it affects your capacity. Mm. And if you don't have capacities, then you can't yeah, commit a crime. You've got a defense. Um, writing that down. Exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, sometimes if you're so drunk that you can show that you don't have any control over what you're doing, um, you may have a slight defense. In that case, the judge wasn't interested. And he said that it didn't matter. Uh, that he was completely drunk when he tweeted this, that he should still be in prison for 56 days, which he was. Um, making sure you don't take pictures of yourself doing illegal stuff. I mean, of course, we're lawyers, and we should say to you, don't ever do anything illegal ever. But it's the classic case of the guy who takes a picture of his speedometer while he's speeding and that landing up in court. Of course, all evidence on social media 
can be used inside the courtroom. We also talk about in that section parody accounts uh, versus impersonation accounts, where the lines are drawn, what the various companies say in their terms and conditions about those kind of accounts. And we talk about tweeting from the court. We talk about uh, news gathering in the age of social media. And I think quite important, silly, is that we talk about uh, what happens to your social media accounts after you die. You know, I think that a few years ago, people wouldn't have believed us when we said that people are starting to make provision for what happens to their Facebook and what happens to their Twitter and their Instagram data once they've died. Um, but that is something that people have to start thinking about because gone are the days of inheriting a shoebox full of photographs and letters from your dead grandmother. Um, I don't know when you last printed photographs, silly, but for me it was a very long time ago. And if anybody wants to see that information, um, then they're most likely to get it from my Facebook. Uh, I'm into um, Snapchat now, uh, Emma, after reading your book. I'm, 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 a, I'm a Snapchatter. I mean, do, do you want to give me nightmares? <laughs> Let's talk about Snapchat because Snapchat lied to us. I mean, they sold Snapchat to us on the premise that you send the, you send the snap and then it gets deleted from the recipient's device for between, between two and ten seconds after receiving it. They didn't tell us that actually nothing is deleted at all. It just gets hidden. And that information remains on the phone. And with very minimal technical know-how, you can recover those images. Uh, you can even download an app now called Snap Hack, which allows you to uncover every single snap ever since. And, of course, there's the screenshot. Uh, as you get the snap, you can, get, you can take a screenshot. There was a case of an Australian politician recently who um, sent a picture of his... You might like this, actually, Philly. Uh, he sent a picture of his penis inside a glass of white wine. <laughs> Um, and sent it to a woman who wasn't necessarily his wife over Snapchat. <laughs> and um, this woman took a screenshot of it and put it online. And, uh, you know, he's really disgraced after this incident. But it did lend itself to the most amazing headlines. I think my favorite was uh, Plonk, uh, Plonk his Plonker in the Plonk. <laughs> How do you like your so wine? Chilled. Apparently it must be chilled. Um <laughs> Um, so then we move from the common sense bit into the business bit, where we talk about how social media affects business. Uh, social media is a rec recruitment tool. Can you Facebook stalk somebody before you interview them, before you hire them, when you can get fired because of what you're saying online? Um, looking after your digital CV, because I think we are at the point now where your online, uh, you know, your online activity, your digital footprint, really is your modern-day CV. I remember reading uh, recently as yeah. well, Emma, that uh, I think 75% plus recruiters uh, of recruiters look at your social media um, profiles as part of the recruitment yeah. process before actually even you know, engaging and going to the first-round interview phase. I think that's an amazing statistic. It's almost at the point where it's not a question of they might kick you out online. It's a question of if they don't, I think they're being negligent. Because as soon as that person works for you, every time they go to a meeting, every time they, you know, they, they meet a new client, that client's also going to check them out. And if it's quite clear that they're racist from their social media accounts, that looks very bad for the company that employs them. So I think it's not a question of they might check you out. It's a question of if they don't, they're negligent. But, you know, on that, when you Facebook stalk somebody or Twitter stalk somebody, you come across a whole lot of personal information. Not me in particular, right? We're talking about general you. Right? I, I mean, I've, 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 I've never talked to you silly, of course. You do come across a lot of personal information about that person that you wouldn't be able to ask in an interview. For example, their religious views, uh, their political views, whether they have a particular health vicissitude, um, you know, whether they've got five children at home or they're pregnant. Their sexual or, orientation. You know, 
all that kind of stuff is quite clear usually from your social media accounts. So you've got to make very sure that that information isn't going to frame your thinking because, of course, you can't discriminate on any of those grounds. So, um, so that's quite an interesting uh, development. What they're doing in, in England is that they're outsourcing the sort of social media audit stage of, of, the, um, of the recruitment process, which is very interesting. Then, um, yeah. And I was just wondering, so I think we were talking in here recently about, I think, trying to, trying to teach children about social media. And I think some of us who are a little bit older, like Stilly, um, <laughs> they, they, they sort of know some of the harms and things like that of social media, but if it's sort of young people these days grow up using it. And, and often I don't think they see any, any line between, between the sort of shit they might talk with their friends. Um, however mm-hmm. offensive it might be, um, and what mm-hmm. they publish online. Do you, does the book have any tips as to as to how sort of you can teach children to or sort of teens to sort of um, understand these issues? Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, we go from the common sense bit in the next bit. I mean, the the, the business bit into the children bit. Okay. Because that really, for me, is the calling. Um, you know, the extent to which uh, children can compromise themselves really unintentionally and really without any kind of assistance from their parents. I feel like we're, we're failing children in the digital age. I think we're very quick to equip them with these powerful devices, but we're not as good at uh, teaching them the kinds of responsibility uh, that they need um, to keep themselves safe online. So we talk, the, 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 the children bit is written to parents, but it's also suitable for children to read. And I suppose the big point is the sort of the tattoo effect of the internet, that everything you put online, even though you're young and stupid, um, is still going to be there in five years' time and ten years' time and can compromise you. And I think that's desperately unfair, but that's just the situation that we mm. find ourselves in. Um, we also talk about the extent to which you can be expelled from school because of stuff that you've said online. And on that, the rules of the game have changed. When I was at school, which was 12 years ago, so I'm not as much of a dinosaur as, um, as sometimes these children think I am, but um, when I was at school, I knew I had to behave in a certain way. When I was at the shop in my school uniform, I knew that I had to behave in a certain way. But mm-hmm. then when I got home and took off my, my uh, school uniform and put on my jodhpurs, then the school's rules didn't apply to me anymore. That's changed because, firstly, because of our online profiles, you can always identify a student as a student of the school, which is why the, the rules applied when you were in your uniform at the shops, because you could be recognized as a student of the school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, you have the potential to bring the school into disrepute. That's on, on, online, and most of the children are on Instagram. For me, that's the most popular platform that the children are on. And they also in their Instagram profile where they go to school, they're taking pictures of themselves in their school uniform. So when they take the picture of the 15-year-old girl, you know, at the party on Saturday night with a joint in one hand and a beer in the other, and then she gets to school on Monday and she's expelled, and they can't work out why. Mm. I mean, that's 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 a new reality. So kids can't the have fun these days. That, yeah, I mean, well. You've got to have fun, but you just can't take pictures of it. <laughs> and the other thing is that, that you can't let other people take pictures of you because for these uh-huh. young kids, you know, as soon as they do anything embarrassing, anything obscene, there's somebody with a camera, with a video camera on their phone, of course, or on their iPad, recording everything, documenting any, everything, putting it online, thinking it's hilarious. Um, and children can commit offenses. From, 50, from 14 years old, children have criminal capacity, which means they have, the ability to commit crimes and to be charged with them, sometimes even younger than 14, if the child's particularly advanced or educated, so between the ages of 10 and 14. You know, there are two children in Florida at the moment being charged with murder because they were bullying a girl so aggressively over Blackberry Messenger, um, and this girl committed, another 12-year-old girl committed suicide. 
So 12-year-old girls being charged as adults, which is terrifying. Um, and then also we deal a lot with sexting in the context of children because it's much worse. You know, with adults, mm. it's reputational harm uh, when, when your naked pictures land up online. But with children, it's actually creation of child pornography if they take a picture of themselves naked. It's transmission of child pornography. And we're starting to see prosecutions. We had a 17-year-old girl in Bloemfontein recently who was um, found guilty of creation of child pornography and uh, possession of child pornography and transmission of child pornography because she'd been taking pictures of herself naked and sending them to her boyfriend. Was that, um, the, was that the case where her dad her dad wanted her charged, yeah. I think, to, to punish her? Yeah, her, exactly. Her dad turned her in. Mm. Um, and you can imagine the desperation. But, but yeah, she actually she was given a suspended sentence, okay. but she was sentenced nonetheless. And then just, you know, making sure that children are safe. You are, of course, in, in using all the technological restrictions on your Wi-Fi at home, making sure that they can't. Um, access pornographic websites. Having said that, Twitter is probably the worst porn site in the world. You see more extreme pornographic content on Twitter than I think on any of the traditional pornography websites. Um, Obviously, I don't follow the same accounts you do. That's right. (laughs) You need to get creative with your hashtag searches. (laughs) Um, And then we talk about cyberbullying, and um, of course that is a very big issue. So so that's kind of it. Uh, It's hopefully written in a very conversational way. Uh, you know, we're, we're law nerds, so what we find entertaining is maybe not entertaining to everybody else, but we think it's pretty, pretty humorous. Um, and then we talk about, you know, eventually the sort of final bit is how to delete your account, how to make sure that you've, you know, erased that digital footprint, what to do if you're a victim, um, and then sort of an idea of where we think this is all going, although who could possibly predict that? So, um, the main thing I'm thinking right now is I'm, I'm kind of glad I grew up in an area before in an era before all this was available because I'm just thinking back to some of the antics we got up to, you know, back in the day. I'm quite glad smartphones weren't around. I've seen Stewie's photo albums. They're they're there in print. (laughs) Um, Amen. I mean, I would have been expelled from school 500 times over. I can guarantee it. All I had was snakes. We're going to let you get back to your your prep for tonight. Uh, Good luck with the book launch. Hope it goes well. Um, Thank you very much. Don't Fool Yourself Having Sex is a, the title of the book as well as good advice for life in general. Um, and thanks again for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Cheers, Emma. Bye. Bye. And uh, that's it for the Daily Maverick Show for this week. Uh, you can catch us on the podcasts on the cliffcentral.com website or on the Daily Maverick website. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, thank you to my colleague and friend, Greg Nicholson, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you again next week.